Today's guest is Matt Bowden. Matt is a musician, but also, I guess you'd call him a chemist. Uh, he created a bunch of legal, safe alternatives to different drugs back in New Zealand. The story is a lot more complicated than that. Obviously, we speak about it in the podcast. There's also a Vice uh, special documentary on him. If you look up New Zealand drugs, you'll see uh, a very entertaining episode on him. We also had a very entertaining podcast just now speaking about spirituality and manifestation, but also actual drugs and policy and hallucination. And uh, he shared some models of understanding what happens when you actually trip, both from a rational perspective, but also uh, a perspective that I found very fascinating. So this might have been one of my favorite interviews of recently, too, too early, obviously in 2020 to say best interview of the year, but very fascinating. He's an amazing guy. Super grateful to have met him and have found the time to, to do this with him. So any other quick announcements? No, that's it. This is a good episode. Listen, right now you're listening to episode 078, Matt Bowden. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, part of the Gotham Podcast Studio Network in New York, New York. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Matt Bowden, great to have you here. Actually, I want to start by saying uh, you're one of the most magical people I've met, so I've been very excited to spend this time with you and speak with you about stuff. Thank so you. thanks for being here. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Told you I want to speak about drugs, obviously, and your views on consciousness and maybe some other tangents, but it'd be crazy to start with anything about your story. I guess it's so epic. So can you share with us like how where you came from and how you became someone who creates pro-drugs and all the other cool stuff you do? Sure. Okay. Well, I come from Aotearoa, which is the Maori name for New Zealand. It means okay. the land of a long white cloud. Um, if you've been there and checked out the weather, you'll understand why. And it's a place, it's a place of New Zealand. Um, our ancestors went down there because they wanted to get away from, from Europe. I've just been living in Europe for a little bit and I can kind of get a feel for why they want to get out. Um, weather's there is even worse. Um, so I grew up in a family with, um, let me see, about seven children, I think. And my um, um, folks were Catholic. Grew up on the North Shore of Auckland. Went to Catholic school, just a boys' school, and um, um, so that's a bit of background. Did fun things. Went to scouts. Learned survival stuff. I think most of our scout leaders were special forces guys, so they were training us up and how to set up covert operations and um, crazy stuff like that. Because that's what they knew. Uh, I guess when I was in my um twenties, I was um. I was a guitar teacher for ages, played in rock bands and metal bands, used to teach jazz, metal, funk, fusion, country, classical, just loved the guitar, did some music at university. But I got, when I was at university, I was like really young, I was like 16 years old, and um, I'd skipped a year in primary school, skipped a year in secondary school, and just wanted to get out of school and go to university, because there were girls there, and they were interesting. <laughs> um, and uh, I got interested, I guess, in um, spirituality. I was part of a um, christian kind of movement more into the spiritual side of not the sort of, you know, happier those who've never seen anything but still believe, but more the sort of, if you believe that you tell the mountain to jump in the sea, then it will. And, you know, um, anything you ask for in my father's name, you'll see. I was, I was really challenged to just believe and change reality with my mind and with relationship with the creator. Maybe practice when I was a kid trying to be psychic or trying to, practice telekinesis and all this and 
never uh, really had any success with moving anything with my mind. <laughs> but you were basically applying a Christian model to the mysteries of the universe? Yeah, I just felt like this world wasn't real and there was something else behind it and I was determined to find out what that was, you know. Um, didn't, didn't, I just felt like reality was really flimsy and when I went to sleep at night I could see this other kind of, this other place in the other uh-huh. places, so... What do you think, uh, where do you think that came from, this idea that reality is flimsy? Well, a psychiatrist told me it's schizophrenia. Okay. Um, and that he could give me medications that would take that feeling away. But I found it to be useful. Um, <laughs> where does it come from? Uh, just a, 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 like a, it feels like a memory or a knowledge of something else, uh-huh. you know? Do, do you still have, I mean, what a psychologist might call schizophrenic symptoms now? Or? Yeah, okay. I guess so. Okay, well, so what do you what do you think it is? I mean, to, I guess it's our first tantrum. So I'm speaking with Brittany recently. Yesterday, I have a friend whose brother is like very schizophrenic, and to him, he has friends and a whole life that we can't see. And to him, us, we're, we're kind of like a fake dream that he has to tolerate sometimes. But yeah, he has a whole life that's like very full and normal and rich. And I was wondering, and I was thinking, like, are we just his dream? Like, who's to say? I was curious what your take is on that other world. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, for me, I found after a while, once I've managed to sort of connect with the creator, I could look at somebody and remember their memories and say, hey, this happened to you and this happened to you, and um, this is what's going to happen next. And from my perspective, I was just making stuff up, (laughs) except that I didn't tend to get it wrong. Hmm. And then that kind of, it provides reinforcement, unfortunately. But um, then you kind of realize that, that our, that our five senses and our position and time and space is not as um, that's not all we've got. It's not as fixed as we thought. We can we can move around outside of that somehow. Mm-hmm. We can see outside of it, and maybe it's that for a long time I thought maybe there's just a pattern, and you learn how to intrinsically see the pattern of events, and so you know what's gonna what's kind of gonna happen next. Or maybe it's more than that. Maybe we're connected to some other uh, divine consciousness which is outside of this place. Um, which is more what I'm leaning to now. Uh-huh. And so then if you look and say, oh, this person's schizophrenic because they, they think they're hearing things and seeing things. Um, but if what they're seeing and hearing is uh, can be corroborated uh, as truth, then maybe we're viewing schizophrenia wrongly and um, maybe those medications aren't as helpful as they look. Mm-hmm. You know? So have you, uh, I mean, have, have you corroborated this stuff? Is this something you willfully go into or it kind of just comes and you use the information the best you can? Yeah, well, I mean, to, to me, I've seen in, um, both in, the, in Christian movements and in other movements and New Age psychic, people are clearly channeling information from somewhere else, which is, you know, you can get someone to jump up in front of a crowd of people and say, okay, you over there, your name is... There's like a look at someone who starts feeling their history, sometimes their name, what they do, the major events that have shaped them, you just being able to remember them and feel them. Now, what is that? Are people broadcasting that information? I, I felt like I was getting it from the source, the creator. It felt like it was coming from a, a love, loving, caring, um, benevolent parent thing that really cared about people and knew where they'd come from and where they were going and wanted to give them encouragement, set them free and bring healing mm-hmm. rather than from the person themselves. Um, yeah. And it was like uh, he, this benevolent being is like saying all this stuff and you just happen to hear it. Yeah. 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 It's speaking through 
it's like I'm going to be your mouthpiece for a minute, you know. And, and uh, for me, sometimes, sometimes it's words coming in, like looking at someone and seeing a word appear across their face. Sometimes their face would contort and change into another person or thing and then go away. It might be something I recognize that I've seen on somebody else. Or sometimes that, um, sometimes, uh, feel their emotions of the thing that happened to them and then that emotion gets stronger and stronger and then quite specific you're six years old and your teacher said this to you and bang something on the table and then this happened and this happened and it caused this in you and it's like remembering it and the emotion is so strong you can feel that emotion and then you get the specifics and you can tell them what happened and normally they'll break down into tears or go into shock and then you can then you can bring healing and the, you know, the, the father is saying this or the creator of whatever language the person is most familiar with. This is what's going to happen and that realization, that healing kind of forgiveness or whatever it is. Yeah, and whatever it, whatever it is, like there's something about like that emotional experience that makes it more hearable, right? Like, yeah. Like two, I, I mean, for a long time, I was very, very skeptical of anything like this, but two places where I would, I was, my skepticism and challenge was in acting classes, when someone was really feeling their feelings, it was like you could almost read their past in a way with like yeah. specifics. And the other thing was like my first many hallucinogenic experiences, I always kind of wrote it off as like these are just projections of my mind or whatever. Yeah. But I had a bunch of mushroom experiences with friends where like I kind of forgot my ego and then I could remember their memories. It was always benign stuff. It was like I remember when we were playing Mario Kart in 1996 in the storm and they were like, that's that's what happened to me. And it's like, oh, it didn't happen to me. It happened to you, but I remember it. That's it. Yeah. So where are our, our memories stored that we can access other people's or where is that coming from? What yeah. do you think? You're picking it up. Are they broadcasting or are you accessing something else? Well, I think what you shared makes... I mean, like, Carl Jung would have the idea of the collective unconscious. Like, it's not, like, either of ours. It's just, like, in the cloud, and we can, like, maybe download it. But, you know, maybe it's in my Google Drive because I experienced it. But you could also download it from there or something like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's the model that makes the most sense to me right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Do you think it's always benevolent, though? Because <clears throat> it's nice to think that. And I'm sure it's sometimes benevolent, whatever, whether it's a single being or many beings. But like, I have some friends who studied to become ayahuascaros, and they have all of this tradition of like, you need to watch out for this kind of spirit coming to you when you're on ayahuasca. And like, if it comes from the side, this might be a trickster. If it comes from the front, it's an angel. Like, they have like, yeah. very, I'm wondering if you have any experiences with like. Totally. And this is, this is why I would say that um, it's how we use substances. And it's a lot about the frame of mind. Even if you look way back at um, one of my favorites, the cannabis, back in the Bible, where uh, cannabis is the plant used in the sacred incense. And it says, use this for worship. Mm. Don't use it for other stuff. <laughs> and so what's happening there is, is it's opening up your, it's opening you up spiritually, I guess. And if you're focused on your relationship with the creator, your worship and say, and just focusing on, yeah, the, that the, there's a there's a there's a divine consciousness which is which is real and and you're connecting you're connecting with that and you're in that state of mind that state of mind's amplified then that's the frequency that you're tuning into, but if you're in a really dark space, um, if you're not sure about you know where you're at or some other rubbish is happening and you take a psychedelic then you're going to connect to something else you know you're going to connect to a polar opposite mm. you can channel other stuff for sure. And I think that our heart is like a lens. 
you know, if you imagine that you're, you're projecting an old, a movie through a lens, if there's dirt on that lens, you're going to project that. And sometimes if we've got something in our heart, like some unforgiveness or something, yuck against somebody, and we're, and we're moving in power, then that kind of projects out. You can tell, like, you can tell if someone's, you know, speaking or channeling or preaching or something, and sometimes it's like a dark thing over them, and they've they got something yet coming out. It's often often unforgiveness or bitterness or something, mm-hmm. and it colors what's coming through. And Yeah, and that's like a person's demons. Like, like uh, have you heard of um, the book On Becoming an Alchemist? It's... Uh... I haven't heard of that one, but I'm just going to write it down right okay. now. I'm becoming... On becoming an alchemist. Uh, or on becoming the alchemist. Um, on becoming the alchemist. I read it. It was one of the first books about, like, spirits and, like, manifestation that really, like, vibed with my, my mind. But she had this uh, this idea that angels and demons are simply kind of like... Uh, like a demon is an evil. It's kind of just, like, a lower-level emotion. So, like, mm. jealousy is kind of like an entity that takes over your body. Or, or unforgiveness is, like, an entity that you can, like, attract and it'll be stuck with you. And, like, Carl Jung would say, like, what primitive people call their demons and angels are just, like, emotional things that are stuck in us or not or not stuck in us and stuff. Yeah. So. I think the word angelos means messenger. <laughs> and demon is, like, unclean spirit. Mm. And, Yeah. Totally, totally. I think there's um, but there's some entities like I would sometimes look at a person and just see a particular thing on their on their face. For me, I just see it visually. Okay, and okay, you've got that. It's something I've seen on other people. I know what it is. It's like oh, okay, this person's maybe they're a um, masturbation addict and they've got this lusty, horrible thing and they feel unclean all the time and they're projecting it and they're scared that you're going to see it. So it's on their face and you can see it and you think okay. Cool. Well, what, what will you actually see? you'll actually see a thing. I see a thing, yeah, and I recognize it. I'm like, oh, I've seen that particular thing before. Mm. I don't know what it is, how it represents to me. might be how different how it represents to anybody else, but it's like I can see it and recognize it. I'm like, oh, I know it's that thing. And you get some guys in the Christian, you've seen her real good with deliverance. They can just come up and say, I can see this and this and this on you and break them off. And, mm. and um, I'm sh- I know there's shamans who who same sort of thing. They can just see it and sense it. You can, you can kind of choose what you plug into. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people that are in religions are primarily driven by fear you know and if what fear is an anticipation of um something real bad happening or giving power to um uh misfortune it's the opposite to hope which is kind of that feeling that hey something good's going to happen everything's going to be good and people who are locked into fear it's kind of like you're kind of like they're plugging the plug into the the plug hole wrongly mm-hmm. and so they channel this horrible judgmental um, nastiness which is in a lot of the older religions and it's it's a big part of within a lot of people that are in the Christian thing as well is they've got this they're trapped into this thou shalt not uh, other people are doing wrong and somehow justifying themselves at what they're doing and feeling guilty about themselves and it doesn't allow for really good channeling of healing or anything mm-hmm. like that you know and so it's a bit of a life mission is to set people free out of that kind of crap yeah and then such a person is more likely to like make a religion or a person like their surrogate to god as opposed to like direct yeah. connection and yeah. that's i think how people get manipulated yeah it's like a it's like a fatherless generation i guess people that don't want to go back and connect directly to source. And that's what a lot of the religions were, is they want to have these priesthoods and things. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Christ came along and said, hey, let's let's move on from that. Yeah. Just go direct. Yeah. And 
and people said, oh, let's get rid of that guy. <laughs> but so, so going back to when you were, I guess, a teenager, you said, yeah. you started experimenting with mani- like manifestation or... Yeah. yeah. And it just really didn't work. Okay. <laughs> someone, told me, someone told me I should ask Christ in my life when I was at university and I was really offended. I thought I'd been brought up in a church, you know, I could probably write books about this. Yeah. And, um, but I did and... I was by myself on a ferry boat one day and just on my way home and something kind of came over me. I put my head down and said, I want you to go with my life. I just want you to um, just do whatever you want. Give my life to you. I felt something lift off me and someone was standing in front of me. I was just doing this silently in my head. This old guy standing in front of me and he looked at me and he pointed at me and said, God will be with you as long as you live, son. God bless you. Mm. He's really drunk. He's out of his skull. But he just walked up to me and said that mm. and then walked off and I just thought something just changed. Mm. And um, I... My personality changed. I went from being really introverted to being extroverted. My handwriting changed from tiny little letters to great big bold stuff. Mm. And I just felt I felt like the, the I felt like the door to Narnia had opened and the lion had come out and breathed on me or something. Mm. I started um I read something about Christ in the boat with his buddies when there's a big storm and he mm-hmm. and they woke him up and he was kind of annoyed that they'd woken him up that they didn't tell the storm to be still by themselves. He told the storm to be still and it did. And I thought, oh, well, I better make sure that I, I start practicing this. And so if there's bad weather or if it's getting rained on, I would just tell it to stop. And, you know, by the grace of God or whatever, it did. And this just kept happening. I could do this with people watching as well. And so, which was really cool. And this happened for a while. And um, unfortunately, it went to my head because um, <laughs> I was feeling insecure. Yeah. But, um, but you were... As far as you could tell, literally changing the weather. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would be pissing with rain. I mean, my ma, I told my mom, hey, I found God. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. You've been sucked into a religion, a, you know, a cult. I'm like, nah, no. Nah. But didn't your I mother raise you? Catholic, Catholic yeah. yeah. They, it's, it's, there's not so much focus on directly relation, relating to God. It's more of a vibe. And, um, I, you know, my parents are great. I don't want to diss my parents. They, um, um, highly evolved, conscious, beautiful beings. Like, um, but within within their kind of the teaching that they've got from their generations, um, to think that you could just go directly to God and make demands or mm. expect to be able to just walk in the door and um, it's kind of really presumptuous and you should lower yourself. And, you know, you have priests um, to talk to God yeah. for you and to, to shout your forgiveness. Uh, I, I think that's actually one of the largest tragedies of mankind, the idea of this priesthood, which is... It's like saying having a baby and the baby's not allowed to cuddle its mum or its dad. Only the doctor's allowed to touch it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, hang on, that's, that's, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, walking out the door one day, she says, you're going to need a raincoat and an umbrella. It was pouring with rain. I said, actually, I don't. I command the rain to stop it. The rain did stop at that second. And I just walked out thinking, oh, this is good. This is good, you know. And then the next day, she t- no, my cheat um told me to do the same thing again. My dad was there and said, why don't you stop the rain again? I'm like, it's not me that's stopping it, it's God, but I'll, I'll ask him to stop. And um, they asked me to get out of the family and go and look somewhere else. That was Because that was obviously, I was in league with the devil, you know, because anything that you don't understand when you're in those mindsets is evil. Mm-hmm. And it's still the way that a lot of people see the other religion, you know, is okay, that obviously their stuff's evil because we mm-hmm. don't quite understand it. Where I'm coming from now is, um, it's, like the, it's like the five guys blind man who finds an elephant, one finds the trunk, one finds the leg, one mm-hmm. finds the tail, and says, now the elephant's like a tree. And the other says, no, the elephant's like a snake. The other says, no, the elephant smells like a, something really bad. Because they've just seen different parts of the same yeah. thing. You know? Gotcha. 
Yeah. Uh, and was it around this time that you started using psychedelics, or did that come later? Much later. I was, um, I had this spiritual kind of a gift. I could do that stuff, you know. Mm. Um, a lot of my friends that, that I just met in the same movement that couldn't do that stuff mm-hmm. and thought maybe they were naughty or bad or God didn't like them mm-hmm. or something, you know. But it was just they didn't have the same sort of gift. So, like, we're all part of one body. Some people are an eye. They can see. Other people are an ear. They can mm-hmm. they can hear. Some people can think real good. Mm-hmm. Um, others are hands. Um, and I could just sort of see a lot. And that's all it really was. But people would – I had people that were jealous and I felt uh, resentful. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, this is, this is kind of crap. And then when I looked at what was going on with psychedelics, like what shamans did, I realized that they that there were plants and um, – fungi and things all over the planet which have been put here on the planet that if you pick them up and eat them then you spiritually more open and you can Mm. see and hear these things and i thought well that's actually that's a real good solution isn't it you know for people that are maybe spiritually a little dull or don't really have that gift or want to experience that Mm -hmm. and that got me interested in it but then um yeah i was kind of just music teaching and doing that kind of prophetic-y um, psychic kind of stuff for most of my life I just sit and pray and fast and try to see and hear and see visions in my mind and that without using any psychedelics or plants mm. just based on I've got a relationship and I'm just working with that and um, um, what happened I decided yeah some, someone said hey you got no money you should get a job so I got into marketing and found that you can actually use the same thing in business you can just mm-hmm. ask what's the right way to go what sort of business should I start and Went for work at a publishing magazine that one doing so well. I said, "Ask God why he said, do this, this, and this." And it started some um, magazines that took off and mm-hmm. were doing really well. But I should do this for myself. Someone came into my office one day with these pills and said, uh-huh. "You reckon you can market these? What are they for?" Well, they're for people that um, they're kind of like safer alternatives to drugs. I thought, okay. So I started looking at it, realized that they were similar to the you know plants that open people up spiritually, and thought, well, this is that's actually really useful. Um, so we were looking at marketing these things, and then I was thinking, is this the right thing for me to be doing in my life? And then I had a um, family member, third cousin, who um, was an ecstasy death in New Zealand. He took too much MDMA and didn't understand that, um, I like to say, uh, just like everything you read in the media about ecstasy, it's mm-hmm. really good to take it with a bunch of salt, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to replace your electrolytes and uh, he didn't know that and he drank too much water and he died in the car parks outside the club uh, leaving a child behind and um, and I sort of woke up to it and thought okay that, um, this is kind of um, we need to do something about this this is all wrong he didn't have the information because the stuff's illegal and I you know I used to have you know I used to say hey you know God I want to like be a rock star that's where I figure that I could be most useful um, to you and uh, I used to get people saying to me no you're going to do something else you're going to be talking to politicians and changing laws and standing up for that group of people in society that have no voice and can't stand up for themselves and those who are slaves and lepers I thought what the fuck does that mean that sounds boring it sounds like having to wear a suit and get a haircut fuck um, and uh, and then what else happened I got a yeah I had someone contacted me and said hey do you want to um come over to Australia, which is a bigger, scarier country, and work for my company. We're trying to uh, find some drug alternatives as well, like what mm-hmm. you're doing in New Zealand. Maybe you can come and work for us. Because you already started doing this in New Zealand. Started doing yeah. this in New Zealand, marketing herbal highs and things. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, my accountant did a background check and said, dude, that guy's got like 20 million in the bank. Go hang uh-huh. out with him. See what he wants. But at this point, you had already created like an alternative to meth, right? Well, we started, we st- I just started importing and uh, marketing some herbal products from England. Okay. Um, with um, uh, ephedra type compounds and lysergic mm-hmm. acid type compounds. And from plants or from plants. And so I went for this, I went over to do this job for this guy. He said he had good legal advice and everything mm-hmm. we were doing was totally legit. Mm-hmm. And I was just so young, so naive. How old were you? Uh, I was in my 20s, I guess. Uh-huh. But um, pretty sheltered. And so I went over to Australia and um, I'm on, he asked me to get some samples. Mm-hmm. And I got a bunch of samples because his lawyers told him it was all good, you know. On the plane, I, I got this really weird feeling. I go, what's going on? This really clear message comes and says, um, you're under surveillance, you're going to get stopped at the other end, and um, they're going to search you, but don't worry, they won't find you. Like, wow, that's a weird thing to hear, you know. And I'm on the plane, well, I get to the other end, and people come up and grab me and say, oh, let's check your name, check your passport, okay, you've ticked a box saying you're not carrying your drugs today, and checking in my bags and stuff. Weirdly, they, um, they, didn't, um, they didn't find anything that, it's really, really strange. I was sitting there ready to explain, but they, they didn't find anything. So I walked on through, and turns out the guys, the guys I was working with were all gangsters. They're all carrying guns and mm-hmm. selling kilos of cocaine and stuff. And um, it was quite a heavy scene, and um, but it was quite exciting. And um, I thought, oh, I'm not meant to be here. I started working with them, trying to find, you know, can we find a safe alternative to meth, a safe alternative to cocaine? But I mean, they were they were gangsters. They didn't really want to do something legal, I didn't mm-hmm. think. And one day the um, came back from a nightclub one night and ran into my apartment to change my shoes. And the guys had really liked my apartment. All the walls were made of stone. Mm-hmm. So they bought the entire block and um, evicted all the neighbors and moved in. And so I was living at um, a Bandito headquarters. Oh. And uh, yeah, a policeman comes to the door, open the door, and he's looking in past, looking into my apartment where I've got all chemicals and things lying around. And um, he's saying, hey, we just found a body in the alley and um, just saw you coming in and we know that you just arrived now, but I wonder if we, if do you know if your neighbours would be awake next door? Maybe they might know something about the body. And I said, dude, um, hey, officer, I think my best advice to you is if you don't know who lives next door at number four, pop back to your patrol car and call in backup before you knock on the door because mm-hmm. I'm picking that they're awake and that they may know something about the body in the alley. Uh-huh. Um, is that cool? I'm just trying to do you a favour. And he said, okay, and walked off and I packed my bags and went to the airport and went on back home to New Zealand. And that's kind of how I got started. I got to New Zealand and um, um, there's a, a guy there sent to give me a full intelligence profiling and um, to analyze whether or not I was a threat to New Zealand. So I've been under surveillance and they said, you, you know, you're working with terrorists mm. and um, creating new drugs. Um, you can come back in the country, but we really want to keep an eye on you. And I, just, I just said, look, I just got in with a really bad crowd. And um, I, I actually, it's annoying because I think I think we've I think I've found something we could use to as a substitute for crystal meth, but they weren't interested in doing it properly. They just wanted to keep gangstering. Yeah. So I'm going to work within the laws and I'll be transparent. But I think I'm you know might be able to develop some solutions. Mm-hmm. And do you have cool. a chemistry background or how did you? You know the funny thing when I when I started getting interested, I just thought, well, I just want to learn this, and asked contacted some friends who were. Um, pharmacologists and said, what do I learn at Varsity? Mm-hmm. And um, they said, well, they actually might not want to teach you exactly what you want to learn because they're kind of careful not to lead people down that path. But um, 
I ended up getting private tuition and just paying people money to teach me mm. and just reading all the scientific literature until I could understand it and asking questions and going back and reading, reading, reading. Mm. And um, just sort of learned that way. And eventually, after a few years, guys were coming to me saying, hi, I've got a double degree in medicinal chemistry and pharmaceutical design and biochemistry, kind of a job. And I'd say, yeah, you, this is your job. Also, you need to spend some time just training me and bringing me up to speed so I can mm. understand and so I just kept learning and cool. learning and learning. If, if you're in the industry, you can learn quite a lot if you just jump in. Yeah. You can learn better, more practically and faster than going to school. Yeah, and that's with most things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. All right, so then you started creating this, uh, you had this legal company create this meth alternative. Yep. Right. Uh, and then that took off until... <laughs> yeah, so in New Zealand, meth was just starting to take off. People used to snort meth. There's no cocaine. The boat doesn't stop in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It goes from this... South America, where it comes from, and it goes to Australia, and uh, there's none left by the time it gets to New Zealand. It's a too small a market, so mm-hmm. everyone makes their own stuff. New Zealanders, we you know came generations ago from um, you know from from the mother continent, and there was no infrastructure, so everybody built their house themselves with their hands, mm-hmm. and we just make whatever we need ourselves. Musicians, we build our own recording studio from scratch and make an album that way, and um, so for drugs. Everybody, we just go to the pharmacy and we get the ephedrine and hydriotic and whatever, and we just make the meth ourselves in a our mm-hmm. house, and um, that's how it works because the boat doesn't stop. It's so isolated. It's you know, mm-hmm. it's down there. You've got the South Pole, you've got Australia, and it's a long way to get anywhere else. Um, so yeah, we found benzyl papyrazine was a compound which we figured was going to be safer than meth because it had been present as the metabolite of an antidepressant that had been through some trials before, so it had a history of safety and uh, known toxicity. And in um, 73, someone had given benzylpapyrazine to amphetamine addicts to see if you know what the effect was, and the amphetamine addicts said, yes, we like that, that could substitute for us, but not as much as, we don't like it as much as meth. Mm-hmm. At the time, in the 70s, they thought, okay, we need to ban this substance, it's obviously dangerous and bad. But looking at it again in the year 2000, when there's what the media were calling the meth epidemic, people were going from snorting the meth to smoking it and injecting it. And just that change of route of administration meant that it was way more addictive and way more likely to cause psychosis and take you way too far. People were losing their homes and their families and just going nuts, getting addicted to gangs and gangs were taking over everyone's businesses. Organized crime was just being massively empowered by this horrific addiction. And so, just one question with the psychosis, going back to the other thing, I don't know anything about meth, but do you feel it's also tapping into another world or is kind of with a drug like that, it's kind of just them going nuts? Uh, so, I guess the way that, the way that we've um, evolved, sorry if you don't like that word, um, it appears that our, our bodies, at least, evolved over a long period of time. To start off, with, our brains kind of got this real reptile brain and an animal brain and then mm-hmm. a higher kind of consciousness brain wrapped around that. You know, um, the different drugs uh, kind of like tune us into a different frequency. They empower different parts. And that meth, that's, that's, that's really putting the animal brain back in control. It's putting you on that adrenaline buzz, that fight or flight. And so um, normally that neurotransmitter is useful. If you're um, a kind of a primitive person, you're being chased by a large animal, you're going to run away or you're going to attack. Those are your options because the enemy is near. Yeah. And um, if there's, you know, you're a 21st century human being now, but you've shot some meth or snorted some meth, then you're going to get to a point where the enemy is near and it's probably the person in front of you, so you shouldn't be trusting anybody anymore mm-hmm. and you need to fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you've done. You've just switched the channel. Um, is there a spirit involved in that? 
um, yeah, maybe, you know, if, you're, if, if you like to conceptualize these energies as spirits, then yeah, yeah, you could say that person's been taken over by a spirit. Yeah, you know, like, like a, maybe a lower consciousness being than... <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening. Does that mean you could just cast the spirit out and the person will be okay? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I'm not going to answer it. I don't yeah. know. There's okay. different theories on that kind of stuff. Can mm-hmm. you just could you just tackle that problem spiritually and just remove the um, the ruling energy force behind it, or do you need to make some other changes as well? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Well, just wondering. Um, but then you you created this uh, benzo benzyl hyperazine. Okay. Yeah. Benzyl hyperazine. Similar kind of a structure to an amphetamine, but um, a little bit different. The, the ethylamine's kind of closed around cyclized into a piperazine. So you've got, it's like a, it's like a young, like six little carbons in a ring, but two of the opposite ones are nitrogens instead. That's a piperazine. Okay. So it maps loosely into the same kind of receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, one question, because uh, you know, you've uh, shown me different molecules and how things work and yeah. how, they, how, uh, you change the carbons to nitrogens. That, is there a way for chemists or anyone to know the effect beforehand? Like, oh, if we switch this with a nitrogen, it's going to not be addictive or something. Or does that have to just be like trial and error and then you know? At the end of the day, it's, it's trial and error because okay. there's always exceptions to the rules. But there's a certain amount we know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you imagine that, that um, in your brain, all around your body, there are receptor sites. And a receptor site is like a keyhole. Each mm-hmm. one is a different shape, and as our bodies have, um, our bodies have different neurotransmitters, different things flowing around them, serotonin and dopamine. There are these different rivers of different fuels: serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, etc. And these um, um, these neurotransmitters, each one is a certain shape, mm-hmm. like a key that is going to fit one of those keyholes. Mm-hmm. And so your serotonin molecule fits into a serotonin receptor. And so what we're doing with uh, with drugs. Uh, is that we are, well, what we're doing is, as human beings, when we eat different things, we look around the planet and each different plant has got a different biochemical makeup Mm -hmm. and different plants have got molecules in them, which when we um, get them into our bloodstream, they are maybe almost the same shape as those neurotransmitters. So they plug into the receptor sites and flick a switch. You know? Gotcha. And that's kind of like what, I guess, Alexander Shulgin did with, like, I guess he yeah. did with masculine. Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering if it's just, like, you just try every chemical and see what happens, or, like, okay, because you're saying you kind of know what the shapes for each lot yeah. hole are. Okay. We, yeah, we can map out the receptor site and get a feeling for what shape it is. Mm-hmm. The other things that we can do is we can look at structure, activity, relationships. So we know that Alexander Shulgin saw what shape the serotonin molecule was, for instance, and then made a whole lot of different modifications and um, T-cut all the different sort of um, uh, tryptamines and then mapped them out to find out what they would do and mm-hmm. listed the effects. And you can sort of see a pattern, okay, um, whenever we put a methoxy on this position, it does this with a potency. And whenever we do this to the tail, then it makes it... Um, um, Gives it a stronger affinity for this receptor mm-hmm. site instead, and so you can you can sort of make a rough prediction um, based on structure activity relationships, and we can know, okay whenever we put a chlorine in this position, mm-hmm. it causes toxicity, so we make sure that we won't do that again. We'll just avoid mm-hmm. it, assume that that's a rule. Uh-huh. Um, we know that if we put a sulfur in this position, then when the enzyme binds to it to try to break it down, it causes something toxic, which can be fatal. So we're not going to do that anymore. We're just mm-hmm. going to rule those ones out, and. Um, 
So there's structure activity relationships. And the other thing you can do now is um, um, you can sort of basically do computer modeling. So you take all of the data you've got, feed it into a computer and say, um, like an AI and say, you know, what will this molecule do? Okay, mm-hmm. this molecule we know will hit the CB1 receptor. So it will um, be like THC. Uh, so you can get a computer to do it for you. Or you can, um, after a while, you can look at, you can see a pattern in all the molecules you've created and tested. But with like a, like emotional, like subjective experiences, is there something one to one? Like I remember before cannabis was legal, I heard people were always saying like they're going to modify cannabis so that they can remove the paranoia or something like that. Is it like they know that paranoia is caused by cortisol and they could be like, oh, we're going to remove this thing that is it, like, is it that simple? We really tried. We took yeah. the THC molecule and thought, okay, let's make a whole bunch of modifications. For me, um, there's like 8% of the population that do the DNA um, when they take cannabis that could it could bring up like a latent schizophrenia. It can be uh-huh. absolutely terrifying. I'm like that often, you know, and, um, I take some cannabis. I feel like my soul is being sucked out into the earth and mm. there's nothing I can do about it. Learning meditation here really helped with mm-hmm. that. But um, usually I just won't take a lot of cannabis. I'll try to stick it on the outside of my body. Gotcha. Um, so I, I thought, well, you know, well, maybe we can make a modification and get rid of that. But it seems like that that paranoia is um, inherently kind of linked into the CB1 receptor, which okay. also caused the... So it's the person's keyhole, right? It's not the type of key. Um, you can. And there's things that you can do. Like you can make a key that's a little looser that doesn't lock in quite so tightly. Uh-huh. That's what we did with that benzylpaparazine. Mm-hmm. Because the key didn't quite fit the keyhole, um, it wasn't as uh, potent as methamphetamine, mm-hmm. and it also was less addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gave an experience, which was, wow, this feels great, but the next day, yeah, I mean, you had to take 10 times as much of it as you do with meth, and the next day you feel kind of sick, feel like, I don't want to do that again, I feel crap. Mm-hmm. People complain, that's the shittiest drug ever. I felt crap the next day. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's right, that's right. That's why that's why nobody got addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who were addicted to meth crossed over to this and then came off. And so when we showed it to the, um, the Ministry of Health and the government set up an expert committee of scientists to assess uh, new drugs that came along. And so we basically mirrored that and created our own expert committee of scientists with similar sort of qualifications to um, produce the information and um, research that we were able to feed them and say, this is our risk analysis of this drug. We think it's um, uh, at a risk level which is in, you know, comparable to other normal daily activities that people take part in. Mm-hmm. And so we don't think it needs to be illegal because laws uh, need to be... Um, um, oh, the word's been away from me. I hate it when it happens. Um, we can edit this, right? Proportionate. Mm-hmm. That... Um, Regulations and laws and controls put on people's lives need to be in proportion to mm-hmm. uh, to what you're trying to regulate. So if you've got a drug which is going to kill a whole bunch of people, then we need to control that. But if you've got a drug which is not so dangerous, maybe you've got an experience where we said, okay, if you're flying in a 747, um, you've actually got a one in seven million chance of losing your life every time you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are driving to work in your car in the Auckland traffic uh, for a year, you've got a one in 10,000 chance of losing your life when you do that mm-hmm. um if you are skydiving um or if you're swimming at the beach there's a you can you can work out a ratio of what the chances that you're going to die 
and we made 26 million pills and they were consumed by 400,000 consumers over eight and a half years on 10 and a half million occasions with no deaths, which told us that you've got a less than sort of one in 10 million chance mm-hmm. of dying eating the pill. So eating the pill is safer than flying in an aeroplane or driving to work or going to the beach. Mm-hmm. And so those are normal activities. More people fall out of die falling out of bed than taking an ecstasy pill. Um, the ecstasy pill is, you know, the chance of death is similar to a female contraceptive pill. Mm-hmm. And so... So do these things need to be illegal at, at that level if we're just mm-hmm. looking at it really, you know, objectively? Maybe it doesn't need to be illegal, especially if making it illegal makes it more dangerous. Mm-hmm. This is the logic that we worked on. And our government said, yeah, it's, this is making sense. The reason we have laws is to reduce harm to consumers. Mm-hmm. The reason we had a, you know, so I went and looked at the drug law in New Zealand. The policy behind it is harm reduction. We want to reduce mm-hmm. harm to consumers. And so we need solutions that are going to reduce harm. We need risk management solutions. And so the basis of risk management is first you do a risk assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it can be shown that providing a safer drug alternative will um, reduce the consumption of more dangerous drugs, reduce the number of deaths, reduce the number of hospital overdoses, furthermore, will reduce the need for expenditure on our law enforcement and on justice, putting people in jail and chasing them around and messing their lives up, um, then that actually takes significant sort of financial burden off the country. Mm-hmm. And if you can then also tax that um, so that we're putting money back in the coffers, this is the case that we made to the Ministry of Health. Mm-hmm. The Ministry of Health then got the Revenue Department to analyse it and they made the same case. They said, this is the way forward. Um, we need evidence-based policy where we use um, science and knowledge mm-hmm. to create or to allow an industry to create safer drug alternatives. And then we went and... Um, and so that, so that worked. We, they said to me, look, um, when I went to the Ministry of Health, I said, hey, I've got this idea. Um, I'm a family member from an ecstasy death. Another friend of mine at that, at that point, who we can talk about later, committed suicide at a party on crystal meth, uh, walked through a plate glass window, figured he was invincible. So um, no one would believe him he was invincible. They just said, dude, you're just high. And so we saw a katana on the wall, a samurai sword. So we took the katana and said, watch this. And he um, put it, disemboweled himself. He stabbed himself 38 times through the chest. He was a big, strong man. And um, he impaled himself in the wall and died. And um, it, was, it was horrific. And so I had these three things in my mind. So I went to the health ministry and said, hey, 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 we need to change the way we're dealing with the drugs. You know, why can't we just... Why can't we just decriminalize and regulate these drugs? And they said, we tried it with marijuana, and America said they were going to stop buying our meat and cheese. So if we try to move away from the 1967 um, UN Charter on psychotropic substances that we all signed up to, well, that's that little countries where we got bullied into it, um, then we get trade sanctions, you know? Um, and so. And then not very long later, most American states legalized it. <laughs> Now, yeah, thankfully, the American people also stood up against the American federal bullshit and said, hey, this is so wrong, it's evil. I mean, my personally, my conviction is that um, if we look at the history of drug prohibition, we see it's largely um, racially motivated. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, you've got a colonists that are cruising around the planet, colonizing, you know, um, New Zealand, Australia, South America, America, all these places. And there's culture shock because they're saying, oh, these people have got different values. Part of it's the religious guys saying, oh, you're taking mushrooms to connect to God. Well, that must be evil. Um, yeah, let's make that evil. We'll make that a taboo. Mm-hmm. It's evil. It's demons and the devil. So you've got to be part of our religion instead and yours is all wrong. And so part of it was that misunderstanding. And then part of it is, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could just make a rule to um, control all the 
you know, all the black people, the Africans and the Mexicans, um, why don't we just do something dietary and outlaw their cultural practices? Then we can just lock them up when they're, mm-hmm. when they're, you know, just eating the things that they want to eat. And then you've got you've got a situation where um, the choice that where people who consume alcohol. I mean, I'm, I've got a European DNA. My people have been consuming alcohol for so many generations that we've actually adapted genetically. We produce higher levels of dehydrogenase, the enzyme mm-hmm. that breaks down alcohol. Whereas people with African DNA, they've, they've been on the hemp for so long that they've got a differently developed cannabinoid system because they can, they can process cannabis better. You know, they don't go, they get paranoid. And so then you make a law that says that um, choosing cannabis to relax is somehow wrong, but alcohol's okay. Then that law, it's not, it's not just, it's not just culturally insensitive, but it's genetically biased. And so you've got, You've got laws which are genetically biased, which are you know racially discriminatory. Um, that's that's just so wrong. Then you end up with disproportionately high numbers of certain genetic subtypes in jail that are criminalised based on their DNA. Yeah, and uh, Native Americans and Asians who don't process alcohol very well and they get flushed. Uh, I guess there's more toxicity for them with alcohol. More toxicity yeah. for them. And the choice that they're making of maybe I want to take some opium or cannabis instead, those choices are being made at a genetic level mm. and we're and we're punishing them for it and criminalizing them for it. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's paramount to slavery, really. Mm. And the roots of it are in slavery. You've got particularly, um, I, I, love, I love Americans and... Um, and a lot of beautiful things have come out of the United States. So I don't want to be down on Americans, but, but something that came out of the culture where you've got a slave culture which then got turned around and their desire to keep that people group down was I think that the roots of this um, prohibition drug war are in, are in that slave, mm-hmm. slave-driving culture mm-hmm. and that it needs to be kind of uprooted and treated the same way. Mm. Yeah. And that was kind of, uh, I mean, to skip ahead a little bit, you found success with a uh, replacement for... Uh, for meth, and then you took on alcohol next. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, um, went to the government. They said, yeah, if you've got a safe alternative to meth, then it's, it's going to stop the death that are happening. Like people, horrible things were happening. Um, organized crime is on the rise. They said, if that works, Matt, we're going to tell the police to leave you alone, and if it works, then we'll change the laws and we'll build a regulatory system. Okay. And that's what we did over 10 years. Um, it worked. Um, 60,000 people quit meth. Twenty um, percent of the adult population tried the pills. Forty-five point six percent of them said that they were using um, our legal party pills because they just stopped using illegal drugs. Other forty-four point one percent said that they were using so that they didn't have to use illegal drugs. So uh, about ten percent of the population in New Zealand was taking meth. I I I think. Was eight or nine percent of the adult population at that time said that they had tried meth? Oh, I wow. think that's what it was. Yes, yeah, there's, there's no cocaine, uh-huh. okay, and people go out to party, uh-huh. and in the nightclubs, that's what's going on. So uh-huh. all of the um, people that are in the age group where they are going out in the evenings to socialise and um, potentially meet a significant other or whatever that normal human mating ritual that's happening, yeah. just as it has from the dawn of time. That ritual seems to happen in the late evenings and people need to change gear in their brain, which is a completely normal behavior that humans have engaged in from the dawn of time. They use the tools and the plants and things around them. They consume something to increase their confidence, decrease their inhibitions, and um, um, uh, make it more likely that they're going to be able to find a partner Mm -hmm. to 
pair with or mate with. It's totally normal behavior, mm -hmm. not a deviant behavior at all. And so people use what's around, and if meth is what's around, that's what's a supply, gotcha. and that's what's huh. going to be consumed. Yeah, it's totally normal. It's just the way I explain like this is because these are laws. We try to make laws. This is what I say to politicians. You can make you can make whatever laws you like, but mm -hmm. if you make a law that orchards are messy because there are rotten apples everywhere, therefore the rotten apples must rise up and stick stay in the trees, that's not going to work because you've gone against the laws of nature. Right. You can't legislate against laws of nature. You can't go against gravity. In the same way, it would be just as stupid to try to legislate against the laws of supply and demand, against economic mm -hmm. laws. If you make the drugs illegal when there's massive demand for them and you try to reduce the supply by funding law enforcement, border control, all that happens is the value goes up, um, the demand is still there, and uh, as the value goes up, the price goes up, it just becomes more expensive. And then people need to resort to crime, especially if they're addicts, because their primary drive is going to be to use the substance they're addicted to. And that's mm -hmm. going to overrule all the other morals and things that are going on in their lives. Yeah. Um, and so instead, you need to reduce the demand by supplying a safer alternative. That is the common sense way to reduce harm. Yeah. Oh, one thing with uh, your product, since it, it was not addictive, because it sounds like the come down wasn't the best. Right? Was, yeah. Wasn't that bad for business, though? Uh, <laughs> like, I guess people probably wouldn't be eager to do it all the time. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's one, yeah, I was I wondering. Really, like, I, I really wasn't motivated yeah. by the business. Mm -hmm. I didn't patent my technology. I just let it out there, and everybody copied. And mm -hmm. there was suddenly this 20 or 30 different people selling these things, and everyone mm -hmm. was making them a little bit stronger. And I just pulled back and got everyone together and said, hey, look, I'll deal with the media and the government and you guys can just put money in a kitty to pay the lawyers and to pay my expenses and I'll just be this guy doing this. And so I had pretty good, clean, pure motives mm -hmm. um, for a long time um, until things changed. And we actually got sick of trying to have committee meetings for the um, industry to try to move things in the right direction because the the other um, business entities, their primary driver is to maximize profit, keep revenue going, mm -hmm. um, which is not quite aligned with what I was trying to do in um, having a social responsibility angle and trying to create something that's going to work for the community. And so there were clashes there. And then um, I took advice that it would be better if I just developed the technology, built the factory, manufactured everything, took all the money, because then I'd be able to be totally in control mm -hmm. of, um, you know, I'd be like I had a ring that I could rule everything with, you know. And, um, um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, I guess my ethics got a little polluted or so, it just got so hard to do the right thing all the time when there's such a massive push. And, um, uh, yeah, we started... The market kind of went in the direction of synthetic cannabinoids. Everyone, um, again, an election came up. The liquor industry were losing money. Mm -hmm. um, people were choosing to buy our pills instead of alcohol because uh, it's more economical for a night out and a bit of buzz. And um, your night goes longer and you're not drunk. And um, the liquor industry rose up during election time and said to the government, you know, you need to stop the party pills or we're not going to pay for the election. Mm -hmm. I didn't really notice it so much the first time it happened. That's what happened. The party pills got banned and mm. BZP got taken off the market. Um, ecstasy deaths and um, meth craziness started happening again. Um, organized crime rejoiced. And the market started going towards um, synthetic alternatives to cannabis. And, and I was kind of excited about that on one hand because I thought, well, hey, it looks like cannabis has got some um, 
is really useful for pain and for cancer and mm-hmm. for epilepsy. If we start doing research into cannabinoids, maybe we can find some superior compounds. And so by this stage, I convinced the government that they could let us, um, that they should um, have a law that says people can apply for a research license and build a lab and start manufacturing. And then um, we got that through Parliament and I applied for the license and got it and built a lab. And so we started, and I had a bunch of chemists working for me. Mm-hmm. We started designing all these molecules and we designed... Uh, we got one that was like a THC analog. That's a thousand times the potency of THC at the receptor site, where you know the dosages are right down like ten micrograms. You've got the tiniest amount that you can't even see on your pipe, and you inhale near it, and um, and you're really, really stoned. Mm-hmm. Beautiful psychedelic kind of a buzz. Um, um, yeah, but as we were creating these things, even if we whether we patented them or just got labs to make them or whatever, they just started leaking out, and then we'd get reports of, you know, shootouts happening in Russia with the KGB over massive shipments of this chemical that we've developed in our lab. Oh. And um, all these just crazy things happening around the world. It was just, just so out of control. And, of course, we were making a lot of money at that stage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, How did that feel, knowing that your work was, like, affecting so much in the world? Um you know, how did it feel? At first, when particles were out there and hundreds of thousands of people were taking our drugs, it was kind of scary. Like, oh shit, I just, I thought I was just doing something for a few people in my local clubbing community, and now other people have copied it. And instead of just being sold, we used to sell just the products in nightclubs or where you buy your drug paraphernalia and try to keep it underground. But the media grabbed it, and it was on the six o'clock news. It was the main leading story, it was our drugs. Mm-hmm. And then everybody wanted to try them, and suddenly, you know, 20% of the adult population are, are taking them. And then you start getting phone calls, getting phone calls from the hospital, you know, hey, there's someone in here who's taken 50 of your pills. And, um, and those, it's a scary time to think mm. someone's going to lose their life. And, mm. But yeah, I mean, thank God, 26 million pills later, there were no deaths, there were no fatalities. Mm. We, we did everything we could. I mean, we got data from overdoses and on people's bloods and so on, what the electrolyte imbalances were, and then we tried to correct that in the formula. Mm. And, and if there was too much strain on the heart, then what can we do in the formula to empower and strengthen the heart muscle so that it keeps going? And then, yeah, yeah we just had no fatalities. We kept improving the formula, improving. There's too many come downs. What can we do to supplement the mm. upstream supplementation of neurotransmitters so that uh, we can alleviate the come down? And can we put those things into slow release um, uh, tablet formulations so that the active drug hits and then later on as things are dissolving in your stomach you get all the aminos that you need to um, replace your neurotransmitters to overcome mm-hmm. the come down and we're just doing all that kind of technology what sort of antioxidants can we put in there to clean up after the pill mm-hmm. um, um, yeah and then quick, once we're it's... coming up in an hour it's okay if oh. we go over a little bit oh yeah sorry yeah I'm just ready no no I, don't, I'm, I'm having, I just thought you have stuff you have to do today yeah I don't mind if we go over no I'm okay. good yeah okay good. cool where do you want to go next with it? It felt kind of scary, but uh-huh. I had a doctor friend of mine who took me aside one night in a club when I was getting upset and said, listen, I've done a bunch of training as a doctor, uh-huh. and what I understand is this, that I'm going to try my best to help people. Sometimes in my career, um, I know that I will make mistakes, and sometimes as a result of the mistakes that I make in my career, somebody is going to lose their life. But more often than not, I'm going to save lives far more than I'm going to lose. And that's what happens when you're a doctor. And mm-hmm. it's the same for you, Matt. 
you know, you have saved many, many lives. And what you're doing is particularly with providing safer alternatives who are getting tens of thousands of people off addictive drugs and making products which were not going to kill people. And so often we saved a lot of lives, mm -hmm. but there's always that, that fear of what happens when it goes wrong and someone mm -hmm. loses their life or someone does get addicted. And mm -hmm. So that was um, uh, something you have to live with. Yeah. What was your relationship with God at this point like? This is like a pretty heavy thing to deal with in reality. I would, I felt like I was a messenger or a spokesperson that I could sit down with media or a politician and this presence would be around me and I could speak clearly and just in allegories and stories so that people could understand this is the right, this is the way forward, this is the thing we need mm -hmm. to do. That was cool. But, you know, once that, once the millions of dollars started coming in, I had a friend of mine who talked to me about manifestation and said, if you, Matt, you're doing all this stuff. All my friends had like Lamborghinis and, and um, big houses on the cliff and all this and lots of money. I just, I didn't, I couldn't make my mortgage payments, you know, because I just didn't really chase the dollars and wasn't mm -hmm. interested in the, in that thing. He said, just believe in your mind that you've got like a figure, like 20 million or 10 million, whatever it is, until it happens. And um, don't do anything else in your mind and manifest it, you know. And I thought, oh, wow, this is kind of like the faith in the mountain. Okay, God, let's mm -hmm. just do this. And so I started using that manifestation without having uh, a really good intention behind it. Mm -hmm. I was just like a guy at the gym, just trying to push a big weight or something, you know, or just trying to achieve something for the sake of ego or to, it is an experiment, not with a really good, clear intention at all. Mm -hmm. And and in practice, this was just like holding the idea of $10 million yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Until it manifested and when it came, there was just a whole lot of trouble came with it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I just have real words of warning and caution for people doing that and the, the way that we do a lot of manifestation, if it's just head, power, magic, without a lot of real nice intention behind it, it can go really badly and you can seriously regret it. Mm. You know, I remember I had a you know beautiful, if you've seen the Vice documentary, had a beautiful lighthouse up on the cliff and one nice house in the country and all this stuff. And I was sitting down by my little stream one day feeling so conflicted and feeling... I can't feel the presence of the of the the love creator Christ spirit thing around me anymore. I feel like I said one day I feel like if you asked me to give up all of my wealth and my asset base that I would have trouble saying yes. I feel like it's the most important thing to me now. I feel like there is this weight I call it I call it the gravity of gold which is just pulling me and locking me into this earth realm. Please take away everything that I don't need. Take it all away. And if you ever pray a prayer like that again, great caution. It took 48 hours for that question, that prayer <laughs> to be answered. Wow. And in that 48 hours, someone had come to me and said, um, Matt, the, someone in the government came and said, hey, Matt, the USA have sent us a diplomatic communication. We got to the United Nations and presented our policy. United Nations Drug Control said, well done, New Zealand. This is the only solution on the table for the emerging drugs threat. And many countries had gone into um, you know, workshops with New Zealand government about how this could work for their country. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to get like a ticker tape parade and a knighthood, you know. Mm -hmm. my, my, I just about needed a, a truck or a trolley to carry around my ego. And then... Um, 
And uh, yeah, the someone in Parliament came and said to me, the liquor industry have talked to the Prime Minister during the election, you're going down, so get ready. I didn't know what that meant. Pray prepare. 48 hours later, the Prime Minister changed the laws overnight, made everything I was doing illegal, inserted a new piece of a clause into primary legislation saying the industry may not seek compensation, because normally if they change the laws overnight, you lose millions of dollars, you, you get a payout, unless they write a clause in, totally unprecedented, just to fuck you over. Uh-huh. And uh, at least, like, the cause and effect here was because you tried to take on the liquor industry? Yeah, I'd gone out and said... Look, it's great that we've got a safer alternative to meth. Um, not so excited about the alternative to cannabis, but the real dangerous drug that kills 1,000 people in our country every day, two or three Kiwis every day, lose their lives because they chose to consume the drug alcohol. This and tobacco are the two main killers in our country. Mm-hmm. Do we want our future generations consuming these drugs, crashing their cars into trees and dying of mm-hmm. this horrific addiction? Or... Let's do it differently for our next generation. Mm-hmm. We're now going to use our research license to develop safer alternatives to alcohol. It's not going to take that long. There mm-hmm. are many ways that we can even tweak the same mm-hmm. GABA receptors as alcohol does without this level of toxicity to every organ in the body. Bang, that was it. You know? <laughs> Have yeah. you seen this product, Aircohol? I saw it uh, advertised on Instagram. It's like, uh, I guess it has the effect of alcohol, but you it's just an air you inhale through a straw. Is it still ethanol or is it another? I have no idea. I don't actually think it took off because I saw ads for it one month and then yeah. it was gone the next month. But There's a few out there. David Nutt's got some. I, I started working on a project with him up in the UK and then uh, Dr. Z has another one. Mm-hmm. This is, um, it's um, based on MDAI. It's MEAI. It's an amino endome. So it's a serotonin releaser, which mm-hmm. produces a feeling of satiety that you've had enough. Um, David Nutt's working. We He started just looking at, um, for instance, all of the anxiolytic kind of you know anxiety medicines that have been abandoned by pharmaceutical companies because mm-hmm. they had too much of a drunken side effect, just grabbing a hold of those and saying, well, we like the drunken side effect. Uh-huh. These things are normally active in a dose range of one milligram as opposed to like a 1,000 or 5,000 milligrams of alcohol. Uh-huh. They're far less toxic. Let's use those instead. The liquor mm-hmm. industry were terrified because uh-huh. um, the Swiss is going to wipe them out. And they are massive multinationals. They are enormous. Right. And so having them pressure the government and... Um, maybe a little bit of pressure from other countries as well. Prime Minister said, this is just a no-brainer. And and when they want to take you down, even in the New Zealand, the least corrupt country in the OECD, then this old boys network swings in. And mm. first the bank can't. They go to the bank and say, we just changed the laws. You guys are bankrolling a drug dealer and drug cartels. Mm. And so uh, if you don't quit this client now, you're going to lose your international banking license. The bank's going to go out of business. Bank doesn't want to go out of business mm-hmm. and lose their license or a $250,000 fine for every transaction they process. So they just dump you. Mm-hmm. What that means is they, they took all my houses and just put them onto mortgagey sales so I can't mm-hmm. sell them. Hi, I want to buy my house? It's worth $3 million. No, I've seen it on mortgagey sale. I think I can pick it up for one. Mm-hmm. And then when the mortgagey sale comes, they cancel the auction and then sell it to one of their friends way cheaper. And so your asset base just disappears. Mm-hmm. And then the tax guys say, look, the, the, we've just done an audit of your life back to the start of your life. Isn't there a seven-year statute of limitations? Yeah, but there's a clause that says if we suspect there may have been illegal activity, there's no statute of limitations. So we've gone back to the start of your life and a long time ago, we think you might have forgotten to pay some employee tax. Mm-hmm. And when we load on all the penalties and interest, there's an extra million that you need to pay on by Wednesday. Right. And also, because of the particular thing that we've uncovered, it's also jail time. So 
And so we made a big offer and says, the law says that you've got to accept our offer. I'll offer you my total net worth. They said, yeah, yeah, but in special extenuating circumstances, the director of Inland Revenue may, at his discretion, choose a certain individual and show them the full penalty of the law to encourage voluntary compliance in the remainder of the population, which means we don't give a fuck about the money. We just want to see you in jail, regardless of what the law says. They, they've got these powers they can use. Yeah. And so they took everything. I just said, well, you know what? I'm just going to take my family go live in Thailand for a while while this all blows over and stop talking about alcohol or uh-huh. terms. I get the message, yeah. So and that was the end of that. Yeah. And then you came over here with your family. You were here a year plus? Four years. Oh, four years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And were you on a tourist visa the whole time? Or did you get some? Uh, no, I had a, I was part of a, um, an organization who do uh, volunteer work. So I had a volunteer visa. Gotcha. And made, yeah. Gotcha. Cool. And then last year you moved to the Netherlands to work on a new project, right? Yeah, I mean, sitting here in Thailand is when I thought, um, why don't I just take my time here to sort of find myself, reevaluate everything, have a look at, um, just do some vipassanas and study some yoga and meditation and just kind of expand my understanding of things and... Um, I found out that this Eastern spirituality is pretty good for dealing with that ego kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and um, living amongst, we went to live out in Doisakert, just surrounded by rice paddies and had to start learning Thai mm-hmm. and just live in a place where the, there is really no money. It's, there's no millions of dollars in supercars. It's all just kind of rice farmers mm-hmm. and um, a much more simple life just to see what it's like living like that for a while, particularly also for my family to see, hey, it's not all... Where's my PlayStation? Where's my Xbox? Let's have a trip down the road. These kids here are saying, you know, some of them don't have fingers. None of them have got a mummy or a daddy. Uh, we're actually really lucky, you know, and just getting that shift of perspective, living in a different sort of world was has been really good, I think, for the family. But yeah. What was it like for your kids? Because they, I guess they were born into a lot of wealth and then kind of yeah. a little shift. Uh, yeah, totally traumatic. Really? It's total trauma. Um, losing everything and then I was really depressed and if you're a dude and you're really depressed and you totally lose your vision in life then the sort of marriage um, sort of uh, there's too much pressure my wife got really depressed as well and so that was the most difficult time really that big crash mm-hmm. and just reevaluating values and, and stuff so it was really tough on the kids and um, the family um, yeah gotcha having yeah. to find a way back out of depression and kind of rebuild myself into a different person. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, um, but then over these years, I guess you've refound yourself and you started a new business yeah. in Europe. Yeah. So now, now I'm more focused on, let's look at all those cannabinoids and see, mm-hmm. let's test them on cancer cells and let's look at CBD and maybe we can basically using what I've learned so far about pharmaceuticals to look at uh, CBD in particular and the other cannabinoids and knowing how to develop medicines and knowing how to um, test toxicity. That's kind of, I've got a startup now working on that. And we did develop some uh, technology for producing cannabinoids, which we've, which we've patented. And now we're sort of exploiting that and I've worked out how to um, rather than own and control everything myself, how to bring in venture capital, work with other partners and all those kind of things that are a lot easier when you're not just thinking about yourself so much. I guess that keeps you safer from, if there was like another legislative attack, having other 
big people in that old boys club. Totally. Helps, yeah. yeah. And also, what I failed to do really was to do a proper stakeholder audit. Mm-hmm. I should have seen that as well as finding a solution that's really good for the community and works for the government. I also should have thought about the fact that there are these big dinosaur corporate monsters, um, which are stakeholders because they are controlling the government. And um, I need to find a solution that works for them as well. So instead of saying I'm going to go into competition and take you guys out, it's more like, hey, I've got some technology you could use so that you can keep making even more money um, by using this new technology because you're not going to kill your customers and make them sick anymore. So you're going to make more money this way. That needs to be what they need to hear. You right. know? So that's the solution. You want something that works for the community, works for the government, and works for the other corporates, otherwise they're going to kill right. you. Yeah. Right. I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about your kids because I guess. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen your daughter at like open mics and stuff, mm-hmm. and like she's extremely talented. And I've, I've, I mean, I don't have children yet, but I've thought like, oh, like that's like a. I mean, I don't know if your kids grew up too fast with the situation or anything, but I've always thought that most people infantilize their children too long. Like you meet thirty-year-old guys who still act like their children around their parents. I was. I'm wondering if. I mean, maybe it wasn't intentional, but did you have any? Do you have any thoughts on like uh, your kids like, seeing everything there is and not sheltering them and stuff? I've got, yeah, I've got two amazing daughters and uh, one is very extroverted and one is very introverted and we have always spoken to them like intelligent adults because there's intelligent adults inside of them. And so they've always kind of surprised people really by engaging in conversations with adults and um, feeling like that they are as respected as anybody else and that um, children need to be heard and seen. And they're, they're, both, they're both really intelligent. They, the truth is that today, from the moment they have the Wi-Fi password, they're exposed to everything. everything. Yeah. And so your options are to try to protect them or just try to contextualize everything with an age-appropriate description at the time. This is what I try to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some things, we, you know, you turn off and shut off when you can, but as they get to an age where, I mean, my kids will sit down at a healing house and open mics where there's, there's adults sharing about their, a lot of sexual stuff or adult stuff and that, and it's like, okay, well, let's come and check out some stuff on the Nature Channel, Discovery Channel, see what it's all about. This is what's happening, okay? This, mm-hmm. this is what it's all about, okay? And um, they, can, they can process it and deal with it. If it's too gross, we just get the hell out. But, mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you've just got to contextualize it. And if you maintain a bit of a childlike, playful innocence yourself mm-hmm. about life, then that's going to rub off and you're still going to have that. And we play and we laugh and it's okay to, it's okay to make adult jokes as well, you know, mm-hmm. just... Not around other kids because they might they might still be a little bit babyish, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that's something you've kind of uh, shared with your daughters, like other kids. I, I've always thought, like, if I have kids and I raise them in a very progressive way, what about the other parents that are now going to conflict with me when my kids hang out with their kids? Is that something you've had to deal with? You can educate other parents as well. Mm-hmm. If you can explain things clearly enough, then the other parents can understand it too. You know, some some people are just. Again, some people are driven by fear. There are two rivers that flow through the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe one is love, empowerment, manifestation, and the other is fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fear kind of leads to the dark side. And if someone's life motivation for the bringing up their kids is fear, then it's okay to confront that in them. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. 
<laughs> I think that's what I wanted to hear, but awesome. Um, I do want to go back to one thing you said earlier about before we started uh, taking hallucinogens or anything like that, your way of connecting with the divine was like praying and fasting. Was that something you intuited or did you have a process or any? I was, well, I, I think I found that, um, that being here, that, that, that studying Buddhism, studying meditation, has been a real good toolbox for my brain. Um, studying yoga and what came from India, what was revealed there, has been really good for my body. Um, from from the Christ background, there's a whole lot of stuff that's really good for the spirit. You need to filter the religion out. But then a lot of the stuff that he said, you know, some things only come out by fasting. So, you know, what does that mean? You've got different parts of your being, I think, that um, if you're just always being led by your body, you know, oh, I don't like this girl, oh, I can't stop thinking about it, whatever, you know, this, or I want to eat this, I want to eat this, or whatever it is, then, um, then you, you kind of, your, your mind and spirit can suffer a little. If you kind of say to your body, no, you can't just have what you want, just fall into place, come into alignment with the rest of the being. I think that's what fasting does. It sort of de denying that flesh part of you, then the spirit's more awakened. I'm not real good at it because I'm kind of a real skinny dude. If I fast for more than a couple of days, I start lose blood pressure and start passing out. But before I get there, I can see angels and <laughs> clearly. Yeah, it's so later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, like uh, shamans always say to avoid meat and like high stimulation foods before a ceremony. I guess it's the same idea, right? I think so. Yeah, avoiding meat before a ceremony is probably good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think. You know, there's a thing, and particularly for, you know, Christians or people listening and thinking about the, the, maybe the drugs are bad. You just remember there's this moment after Christ's come and said, okay, we, we don't need to worry so much about the law and the commandments there anymore. Just, just the law's now a love the creator as you, and then love other people as you love yourself, which mm -hmm. means you've got to love yourself. And then um, after that, there's, there's this dude, Peter, who's his buddy. Peter's like, um, he's still trying to get people to follow all the food rules. Oh, don't eat pork or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And because, um, you know, you're coming into Judaism and, Christ was kind of like, no, they're not. Let's explain the Judaism. No more cutting the end off your penis, you know. Just, mm -hmm. just leave that stuff alone. Um, and uh, and so this, this angel comes down, and he's got a sheet. Like, he's going to have a picnic. And he puts mm -hmm. it in front of him, and all of the unclean foods are on the sheet. Like, all of the forbidden foods, that is. Mm -hmm. All of the things that you're told you're not allowed to eat. So that would be like your pork. What else is going to be on there? Your, I guess your magic mushrooms would be on there. Maybe your, mm -hmm. your cannabis and, and maybe your acid and all those kind of things. It's, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's you know what it's what comes out mm. that defiles you. And so I'm, I'm I'm not real big on the on um the thou shalt not eat this and the food regulations. I still eat meat or mm -hmm. whatever you know, but I find sometimes it's if you take a break from those things, then there's benefit in it. You know, yeah. so there's no hard and fast rules. I don't think I don't. I don't know what yeah, <laughs> I found that spirituality and spiritual power can come just as easily when you're not following all those rules, you know, to just let it come. It's coming from somewhere else when it feels like coming. Yeah, like the drunken monk thing or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, awesome. Well, this has been super awesome. I'm so grateful we had the time to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to Rwando.com. Catch me on social media, at Rwando. And please do not forget to subscribe.